Welcome to a special presentation of the Progressive Commentary Hour. The theme today is, what do we know now that we did not know at the beginning of the COVID crisis that would allow us to re-understand, re-analyze, and position differently the choices we made. Some choices we had no, no call over. They were mandated. Were those mandates, for example, for staying at home, closing businesses, some businesses? It would seem like a little health food store, a little food market, was a catalyst for catching the virus, but a gigantic box store you were safe in. You couldn't go to a gym and work out and stimulate your immune system, but you could go to a liquor store. So evidently the virus didn't invade the liquor store. We had all these contradictions. In fact, I remember once a man kayaking alone in the Pacific Ocean near the Golden Gate Bridge was arrested because he wasn't supposed to be out there. What did this do to children and their development? What did it do to senior citizens whose health was already on the decline or had more comorbidities to exacerbate their conditions? Where did our Surgeon General come forth and say, look, we're all expected to get infected with COVID at some point, but the science is overwhelming that the stronger your immune system at the point of infection, the greater likelihood that you will have less symptoms and a greater chance of not going to the hospital and surviving. Never happened. Where was there a discussion of the right kind of diet to eat if you were going to be homebound instead of ordering in junk food? Never happened. What about doing mindful meditation and having classes of how to deal with the problem of being isolated, loneliness, depression, apathy, never happened. These are all important ways that we could have survived and actually got ourselves into better shape, but we didn't. What was the emphasis was what we could not do with punishment if we did. In Australia, there was a woman who was arrested. She tested negative three times for COVID. She was sent to an internment camp. Yes, like a Japanese internment camp in the United States in World War II. If you saw these camps, they were very Spartan. She had a tiny little area in a room, and that's it. Very, very few things she could do. Her food was brought into her by people who were masked and in suits. And even though she continued to be negative in her test and had no symptoms, she was not allowed to go out. She could go on a little tiny porch, and I mean tiny porch, but there was a line drawn. If she crossed the line, then she, there would be negative consequences adding on to her time there. She had no habeas corpus rights. She could not hire an attorney. She could not plead the idea that she was healthy because she posed risk because she was not vaccinated. All right, and there were these camps throughout Australia. Now, New York State is recommending the same identical camps, but even more draconian procedures put in place, where if you talk about vaccines or COVID and 
in any way that's detrimental, you could be arrested. You could be put into one of these camps with no ability to, to identify uh, the truth in the matter, and you could rot there, and you could be forcibly vaccinated. That's the current proposal in a, a law that was blocked, but now they've appealed, and the appeal should be coming through shortly, and New York could become virtually a totalitarian state, and California would follow immediately thereafter. So almost everything we were told about COVID, now we look back, and I'm not talking about conspiracy theorists, I'm talking about some of the best and brightest scientists and physicians and public health officials and activists in the world, and saying, my God, everything was wrong. How did that happen? What do we know now that should give us concern? Because they haven't stopped. They're still saying masks. They're still saying you must be vaccinated or you can't go to school. They're still saying that the vaccine they're giving, which has never been tested, the current ones on humans, is safe and effective. They said this at the beginning, the New York Times, safe, 95% effective. Now we find out everything was wrong. To help us in this journey to unravel all of these contradictions of official policy that were completely parroted by the mainstream media, Remember Howard Stern? Remember the late-night comedians mocking people who didn't get their vaccine, that they were a danger? Remember how many families had members who didn't get vaccinated who were persona non grata, excluded from holiday events, excluded from being able to meet their own family members because you're the enemy, you're the other. And then when it came time to use a therapy that was effective, the therapy was denigrated also. There was no science behind it. It was just horse dewormer. But it wasn't. In fact, it was one of the safest, most effective drugs ever created that won the Nobel Prize. So why didn't the good science that was there, in plain view, be reviewed by all of the resource-heavy major media? But it wasn't, not once. To the contrary, they all, all the media, from the BBC to MSNBC to from Rachel Maddow, they all said the same thing. Don't use it. It's a danger. Well, I did some in-depth investigative reporting, and I presented it. At that time, hundreds of studies from the Review Journal, including uh, quality studies, over 99, showing that just, just one drug alone could have made a huge difference. Now, when you combine it with another drug, if you combine ivermectin with hydroxychloroquine, giving greater results, synergistic results, and you add in zinc and vitamin C and quercetin, intravenous vitamin C, which have been used in two separate hospital experiments at Wuhan, China, 24,000 milligrams, and wiped out the coronavirus. None of this was made public. All of it was denigrated. All right. In comes Dr. Jessica Rose, a Canadian researcher in applied mathematics. She also has a background in immunology, computational biology, and molecular biology. She currently lives in Israel, and for the past three and a half years, she has been analyzing the data in the CDC's VARES system, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, to bring to the public's attention the safety signals, meaning the red flags, the hold on, hold on, let's be, let's be cautious about the adverse reactions we're seeing associated with COVID-19 vaccines. No, it was green light, pedal, to the floor all the way. Well, she presented her work to the European Parliament in Brussels, to a committee there, 
to the FCC's Vaccine and Biological Products Advisory Committee and to many international conferences. Twice she was invited to give testimony to the U.S. Senate, but was not permitted to enter the country due to the, uh, her vaccination status, which required by all non-American visitors. Dr. Rose is a graduate of the University of Newfoundland and Labrador and received her doctor from Bahrain University and additional studies and research at the Wiseman Institute, one of the most respected scientific institutes in the world, and the uh, Technicon Institute of Technology. And she's been interviewed widely in not the mainstream media, but in other media. And we welcome her to the platform. And her blog is jessicar, J-E-S-S-I-I-C-A-R dot substack dot com. Nice to have you with us today. Hi, it's great to be back. I think this is my third time, right? <laughs> yes. I hope you receive the articles that we send you on a regular basis. I do, I do, but I, I'm I'm not a good uh, keeper upper <laughs> of reading all the articles. I have like a backlog. <laughs> That's all right. One day I'll catch up. <laughs> Jessica, you and I, and many others, have observed safety signals in the various database of adverse vaccine reactions going clear back to the beginning of 2021, shortly after the vaccines were rolled out, and probably enough of an increase that should have warranted an immediate halt to vaccination campaigns until there was better studies, more independent studies, not just those given to us by the vaccine manufacturers. But of course, that didn't happen. What has been the trend since the vaccine rollout? And what are the observing facts now in the rates of COVID vaccine injuries and deaths, something that both the British Health and Human Services or their health services system and the French and the United States and Canada refuse to share. They have kept the total original information secret. It had to be uncovered through a lawsuit and Freedom of Information Act. And now we have over a half million documents. And Dr. Naomi Wolf and about 3,500 volunteers in medicine and epidemiology are looking and analyzing all this data. And what we're seeing from the data from the manufacturers would have stopped any other vaccine or any other drug immediately in its tracks. They obfuscated, they hid information, and then they lied about it being safe and effective. They lied about it being effective. You wouldn't get infected, you would infect others, and you wouldn't go to hospital. So here we are. After the fact, years after the fact, years after tens of thousands of scientists have come forward, signed the Great Barrington Declaration, saying that there are parts of this protocol that we should not be using. And what did Anthony Fauci, what did Dr. Collins at the U.S. Public Health Service do try to destroy the reputations, the reputation of one of the leading immunologists from Harvard, from Oxford, and Stanford University. We have been lied to. What are the consequences of those lies? What are we just now finding out? Are the unintended consequences not even the vaccine makers anticipated, but now we're living with, and it's spreading like a metastasizing cancer into an unsuspecting and trusting public? With that, I turn it over to you to lay out what you have found, why it's important, and the documentation to support it. 
The form is yours. Well, anyone who's familiar with the vaccine adverse events reporting system in general uh, and or what I've found uh, from looking at this database um, would be interested to know that they're, they've stopped doing weekly updates now. Um, I didn't know this because I'm new to this entire world of pharmacovigilance um, since, you know, 2019, 2020, something happened there. Um, but VAERS data was only uploaded to the front end uh, database for us to download once a month prior to COVID. So they increased the frequency of the uploads to per week, you know, for the benefit of people to have access to the data during COVID. So now they've reverted and gone back to monthly reporting or uploading. So we basically what that means to somebody like me who analyzes the VAERS data is that I have once a month, you know, access to data um, they're probably going to be really large files. And I think the reason they did this was because it's not considered an emergency anymore. But as you rightly point out, I mean, okay, so if you're admitting that and you're limiting access to the data, why are you still pushing this false narrative of safe and effective? Both of those things have been discredited. Myocarditis is associated with the shots in children. CDC admits that. It's like a warning label now. Um, why are you still pushing masks? Why, why all the nonsense continuing? Like it, it, you can't have it both ways. So it's, uh, it's been about three years, I suppose. And there are about 1.6 million reports of, um, adverse events and bears in the context of just four products, the, the Novavax, the Moderna, the Pfizer, and the Janssen. And this is in comparison to the average total of adverse event reports for the year for all vaccines combined, which was about 39,000 up until the year 2021. And, um, and this is not, uh, it's not just a couple of different types of adverse reactions or events. This is over 14,000 different types uh, from neurological to cardiovascular, hepatological, skin, eye, nose, I mean, anything you can think about. The, the damages, the injuries being inflicted for some reason, I mean, we have a lot of great hypotheses at this point, but it's amazing that we still can't definitively say, you know, what's what the mechanism of action is here. Um, it's very systemic. Um, most of us think that Spike is the culprit, uh, including myself. Um, it's a foreign protein. Uh, it's delivered in truckloads repeatedly the immune system's naturally going to mount a, a response to this and uh wherever those um lipid nanoparticles land and transfect they're going to produce that spike protein and you're going to have inflammation at that site um so i mean yeah it's uh it's amazing how far into this we are and how we're still hammering away at these basic questions that, I mean, some of us know the answers to, but I, I guess the masses don't, as in, um, you know, do, do these things biodistribute the lipid nanoparticles? Yes, they do. Um, an article I just recently wrote um, 
describes the mechanism of action by which these lipid nanoparticles actually do biodistribute all over the body. We were told from the beginning that the uh, at least most of the product stays at the injection site. This this was this this wasn't we made a mistake. This was a blatant lie because any R and D uh, person in, involved in lipid nanoparticle development would have to know what I'm about to tell you. So lipid nanoparticles can and do, once they reach the circulation, bind other biomolecules. Um, they can bind negatively charged things like DNA. They can bind uh, uh, something called apolipoprotein E, which is a ubiquitous molecule in the circulation that's involved in, it's very important in uh, fat metabolism. So it binds these um, these fat bubbles called chylomicrons, which is a byproduct of ingesting fat. And it's it's just a normal part of fat meta metabolism. And the end, the end uh, product of the fat metabolism is bringing a something called a chylomicron remnant, this little, you know, reduced fat bubble coated in this apolipoprotein E to the liver. The reason it happens is because there are receptors for this APOE, I will call it, in the liver. So this gorgeous biological happening, which is a part of everyone's fat metabolism, was exploited by certain uh, lipid nanoparticle drug delivery people, um, and they actually use this mechanism to target drugs to the liver. This is all in paper, it's all peer reviewed, it's all in the literature. A drug has been developed, it's called Onpatro, which does this. And so, um, since the lipid nanoparticle formulation is pretty much identical with the COVID products, there's absolutely no reason not to believe that this APOE is not going to bind to the surface of these lipid nanoparticles if they're in the bloodstream, which means that they would get trafficked also to the liver or anywhere where these things had receptors. So the point of all that blah, blah, was that there's no way that somebody in this field would not have known that. I, I This isn't my field, but I just had to go into the literature for about a day and read a few dozen papers to find all this out. I mean, it's it's there. It's there to find out. So if someone not doing the research and development of this technology can find out like that, again, I can't see how they didn't anticipate this. So if they, you know, if they traffic to the liver, why wasn't that disclosed? We had to FOIA request this uh, pharmacokinetic study from Japan to find out that this is absolutely what's happening. These, these lipid nanoparticles traffic all over the body. My guess would be partly because of where these APOE receptors are, and they're they're heavily expressed all over the body, not just in the liver. So it's a mechanism of action for biodistribution, and that's really important because one of the places where these things actually go and collect are the ovaries and testes. So what are what are the implications for fertility, for example? So we're uh, we're still at that. You know, we're still fighting to be heard on, on all of this stuff that's been reve revealed. Peer-reviewed literature pile is like stacked up to here, on, not just on myocarditis, neurological complications, et cetera, uh, bleeding issues in women. 
And now, I mean, there, there's another layer on the cake now with the um, the residual DNA and possible lipopolysaccharide contamination from the the manufacturing process that was used to create commercial products. So um, this is all coming out right now because of a few very diligent researchers that the clinical products, those are the, the drugs, let's call them, uh, that were used as part of the clinical trial. They were modified mRNA packaged in lipid nanoparticles. But that modified mRNA was the product of a DNA that was, you know, in vitro transcription was used on that DNA that was made using PCR. So there was no risk of, say, DNA contamination in the same way as for, that was called process one, as for the commercially made batches, which were made with a different process called process two. And it's very different, in fact. Um, they needed to upscale the contents of lipid nanoparticles, which is the modified mRNA. So they needed a more efficient and less expensive way to make this modified uh, mRNA from DNA, from the DNA template. So what they did was they encoded the spike gene into a circular DNA called a plasmid. They got that up into E. coli bacteria. They shook the bacteria overnight, gave it lots of food and warmth. Bacteria double every 20 minutes and they carry the uh, plasmid with them. So basically you get a lot of DNA at the end of the uh, the, the growing up, you extract this DNA, you linearize it, which means you take it out of the circular form, you do in vitro transcription to create your modified mRNA with your N1-methylpseudouridines, and poof, you have an end product. But it appears, um, because of the work of Kevin McKernan and some other diligent scientists who have reproduced this work, that the cleaning step, which is the final step in this five-step synthesis process, um, was not completed properly. The last step, they use an enzyme called DNAs1, or it's a DNAs, it's a um, something that chops up DNA, and then it's filtered out. Uh, it didn't work on the final product that was made as part of this five-step process. And we think it's because it couldn't work because there were DNA RNA hybrids. So this is just an idea. And so what Kevin is finding, Kevin McKernan is finding in these uh, initial files that he tested, and like I said, this has been um, this has been duplicated in at least four or five different labs now. I think it is. Um, that DNA is in the vials. He found it in the bivalent products for Pfizer. Pardon me. He found it in Moderna. And uh, these, they're, it's not just a little bit of DNA. It's actually well above the EMA standard when you use a, when you use fluorometry for measuring DNA. So this this is absolutely a reason to raise red flags because there's not supposed to be DNA in these products. Absolutely not. We at the end of the cleansing process, cleaning process of the 
DNA from the modified mRNA that is going to be packaged in the lipid nanoparticles, um, you you go through, like I said, you uh, multiple filtrations, and then you measure how much residual DNA you actually have. So if you're doing that properly, there's no way if they were measuring these things properly, or at least you know disclosing what they found, if they'd found higher levels than were typically allowed, that these things would have been sent on to assembly, you know, with the lipid nanoparticles. No way. And also, you're supposed to measure endotoxin levels if ever you're using the E. coli system because this is a part of its membrane, and it can it, it's it can always become an issue when you're using this plasmid E. coli system to grow up DNA. So you measure for it because the last thing you want to do is inject endotoxin into someone as part of a product because you can kill them. Usually what happens is you have, you go into anaphylactic shock and uh, it's not surprising to me that this is one of the, um, the things that people have actually been experiencing. I actually do think there's probably some lipopolysaccharide in there, but it could also be polyethylene glycol because some people have a predisposition to peg polyethylene glycol and then therefore they would react to it if they were exposed to it again. Um, but this is a real big problem because uh, one of the people who duplicated this work uh, found a lot of small pieces of DNA, which is probably the byproduct of the DNA chopping it up. Um, but the detection methods that were used by Pfizer, which is qPCR, probably wouldn't pick these up if they were less than 100 base pairs because they just the PC, qPCR doesn't do that. And so. Um, a lot of these pieces are less than that, including a disturbing piece, um, which is the SV40 enhancer, which is coming alongside something called an SV40 promoter. These are elements of the SV40 virus that have no real role to be there. They're mammalian, first of all. They're used in mammalian expression systems. Um, T7 promoter is the one that Pfizer disclosed in their plasmid map, and that's the one that you use in prokaryotic systems or E. coli systems. That, that's the good-to-go one. So it's not just that Kevin et al. Uh, have discovered DNA that shouldn't be there. By the way, we, we don't know anything about LPS yet. The, the only measurements that we've seen from spikebacks have been redacted. I don't know why. Um, but it's not just the, the fact that we found DNA or the high levels, it's the type of DNA that we found that's kind of concerning. Um, it, it makes you, and especially in the, when you put it in the context of the fact that, look at it this way, without me actually showing you the picture, I'll, I'll just say, you know, I'll, I'll do a little demo with my hands. There are two plasmid maps. These are the circular plasmid uh, DNAs that, you know, Kevin was able to uh, snap gene together from sequencing and that Pfizer disclosed as part of one of their documents. These should be exactly the same if Pfizer was disclosing the actual plasmid map that they used. They're very, very different. And they're different in, in both the SV40 uh, promoter, the enhancer, and also a kenamycin gene. So they don't match. And so which one's the real one? 
the one that came out of the lab that was, you know, replicated, or the schematic that we've seen as part of Pfizer's disclosure, which, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on on Snap Gene, but uh, this is an application that you can, you know, um, kind of reverse engineer a plasmid map based on a sequence. So it'll show you, like, based on the little sequences that you found, what your plasmid map is going to look like. And so uh, it's very, very strange that they did not disclose things that are actually in the vials. You can't refute that. It's like something doesn't match there and somebody has some really hard questions to answer. Um, interestingly, I'm just gonna keep going here. It was only, I think two days ago that Health Canada it was actually, I'll, I'll say one more thing. Uh, we've got a, a paper up on preprint servers, OSF preprints about, you know, what we found. Um, it's uh, it's on my, you know, it's, it's on my, either my Substack or I, on my Twitter, you can find it easily. Um, and not, I think it wasn't even eight hours after we finally put that up in a preprint server. Well, first of all, it has like a lot of views. A lot of people are very interested in what we found. But Health Canada, none other than Health Canada, came out and admitted that they also found, they confirmed the presence of SB40, pardon me, um, promoter in the, as part of the sequence that they had access to. They were given that sequence like ages ago and they just never checked. So once we found, you know, and brought this to the attention of the public, they were able to go back and say, oh, yeah, right, it is there. And you'd think that that would just bring the whole house of cards down, right? No. Apparently, they followed that up with, it's not a big deal. It's like, all right, you, you got some explaining to do there, like, why, why do you say it's not a big deal? Because you have a lot of questions to answer first before you actually convince anyone that this isn't a big deal. I mean... Jessica, let me interrupt and, and get you to be a little more specific on some issues. Uh, I think going too far into the science will confuse a lot of people because they may not have a background oh. in this. Yeah. However, let's focus upon the following. You just made a statement about DNA. But what the average person would know is, what's the problem of having human DNA in a vaccine that's not supposed to have any human DNA? What could be the, some of the consequences of that, even going clear back to Dr. Baltimore's work and a, a woman, I don't know her name, who came up with the idea of jumping genes, that once you alter a gene by inserting something into it, you no longer can be certain of what will happen to that gene. And as a result, we're now seeing that environmental toxins affect our genes, air pollution affects our genes, shortens your lifespan, a lot of the chemicals, household cleaners, uh, the, uh, the plasticizers, emulsifiers, aluminum, used in aluminum foil. A lot of these things that we thought were innocuous, just convenient to us, are now toxic to us. And it takes time to build these toxins up. But now you're dealing with something that can actually, but has the potential to alter a gene and what could be some of the consequences of an altered gene. 
Is it possible that cancers can come from that altered gene? But it's to say that it's no big deal, I remember when Dr. Lewinsky, the head of the CDC, said that, oh, yeah, myocarditis, uh, transient, not a big deal. No, the scientific literature is replete, especially the cardio, the cardiovascular literature, that when you damage the heart, the heart is one of two organs that cannot replace itself, like the liver can, and the tissue in our body can, and as a result, you create a scar, and that scar can change the electrical conductivity to the heart, just like stress can. I can take a person's normal pulse, normal blood pressure, and suddenly they get excited, angry, and suddenly, boom, up goes cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, stress hormones, and now they don't have a normal electrical charge, and they actually, without even being aware of it, their heart can go out of natural rhythm. The blood pressure comes up, and the heart, well, in Chinese medicine, the acupuncture will tell you that it's a very tight pulse, where you want your pulse relaxed, smooth, even, slower. So we know that what she said is out and out not true. When you have endocarditis, myocarditis, you have any kind of inflammation of the heart, and you have scar tissue, within a 10-year period, you're going to have very toxic effects, including death. So it's not transient. You don't have myocarditis, and then you don't have myocarditis. And uh, you can't get rid of that scar. And so they're not being honest about just the basics. And why? Because they first tried to make it seem like it's very little. Not to worry, a few people have adverse effects, but only a few, and we can help them. But then we started seeing there were so many adverse effects, and some of those adverse effects, like we saw with Gardasil, and that was a scandal to itself. That should have given every parent in America a big wake-up call. Don't allow a healthy teenage girl to get the Gardasil vaccines, three of them, because A, uh, it's unscientific. Even the developer of it, who I filmed on this topic, said that you know the problems when most of the cervical cancer, or let's say any form of, of the cervical problems will self-resolve in about 90% of the time over a two-year period. And the pap smear is better at predicting uh, future uh, cervical cancer than the Gardasil. But it was all promoted as safe and effective. But it wasn't. Thousands of young girls died. And I assembled a whole film of hundreds and hundreds of young girls, athletes, no risk factors, totally healthy, dying. And they withered away frequently, losing, becoming paralyzed in their extremities. Again, the government, the CDC, the FDA, U.S. Public Health Service denied a connection, no correlation. But there was. Just like when they said there's no correlation between autism spectrum disorder and neurological problems and the MMR vaccine. But there was. And they, we had the evidence, the hard, hard exculpatory evidence that they knew that, they met, they tried to cover it up at, at, at Simpsonwood uh, with what was called the Vera Stratton study, where hundreds of thousands of kids ended up having a statistically significant increase in autism and neurological disorders. Then the whole meeting was with the World Health Organization, the FDA, vaccine, let's hide this. But Robert Kennedy Jr. exposed that. And then we had the problems with the vaccine, the MMR vaccine, at the CDC, where William Thompson, 
said, and said, and, if, and I got the recording and I played it for this audience, and all the documentation of him telling us went to a legislator in, in Florida who could never till this time get a hearing on it because it would have embarrassed the CDC. It would have destroyed America's vaccine program as being fraudulent. And it would have allowed all those people who were injured, mainly African-American young children, males, up to age 36 months, who had up to a 324% increase in autism spectrum disorder and neurological problems due to the MMR vaccine. And they collected all the data and they tried to destroy it. He kept one copy. And that one copy has never been requested by any member of Congress or any committee or the Justice Department. Because when you're found as a government employee to have committed a crime, a federal crime, you're no longer protected by uh, federal sovereignty where you couldn't normally sue a government employee unless they have committed this crime. Well, they have. And they've lied before Congress. So when you pull these pieces together, you see that there's just a basic sociopathological uh, mindset in everyone working in these governmental agencies in the media following suit because the information you've discovered and thousands of others discovered, they could have. They had the resources. They chose not to. That's a choice to self-censor and then to play the line, get your vaccines, get your vaccines. They're safe and effective. Well, they've been shown to be neither at this point. So here's what I'd like you to focus on, if you would, please. The big, the big problem in the room that no major media is touching whatsoever is unexpected and excessive deaths beyond normal. From 2015 to 2019, four-year period, they had how many people die in a given year? Along comes COVID, and we see a little spike in that. That's mainly in older people who are already at life's end, who had comorbidities, who were in hospice care, assisted living, nursing homes. And then after that, you didn't see it. Even the vaccine brought it up higher than ever before. And there's no other cause. Now, today, I played on my show uh, a member of parliament and a small group. The rest of the chamber is empty. That tells you a lot about how open and objective the conservatives the Tories are, they don't want to hear this information, but a small group were there, I'm guessing under 10 people. And he laid out all the documentation and all the graphs and all this data proving unequivocally that we have massive excess deaths. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of excess deaths per year. And they say of unknown origin. Well, did you do the autopsies? If you didn't do the autopsies, then what was the cause? What's on the death certificate? But now they're going after those death certificates. They're looking at autopsies and they're finding that the vaccine caused more deaths in young people than COVID. Immediately, boom, you should have stopped all vaccines in young people. They didn't. They're increasing it. In infants, the same, unless the child had a comorbidity like leukemia. But for normal children, young adults, 0.02% death. Common cold kills more. So that unjustifies their and disqualifies them from saying, everyone's got to get vaccinated. No, we don't. We're all equally susceptible to getting sick and dying. No, we're not. 
In fact, up to the age of 69, as you know, uh, you're still safe from dying. It's not a pandemic. It's not an epidemic. So then, what is it? And what about all these unnecessary deaths? And we also know these unnecessary deaths are related to the vaccine because of the work of Edward Dowd, who has no background in public health, but used to work for BlackRock, managed one of his divisions. He hired PhD scientists to analyze the insurance actuaries, because unlike the VARA system, which is voluntary and which is troublesome, and I've interviewed nurses who were told, if you have someone die with COVID uh, after the vaccine, don't report it. We've had doctors say the same thing. So they've lied about how many people actually were injured. Well, they found that when someone dies, the insurance has to pay the survivors. And the insurance companies are very emphatic. We need to know what they die from. And here are all these un unknown deaths going way up and in some cases anywhere between 20 and 40 percent above normal when you have about 1,800,000 deaths in the United States more or less every year and suddenly you have two million two and a half million what's the cause of those so a member of parliament broke the story a few days ago no media covered it and I mean no media no discussions I played it, played the whole clip. And so at least those who care about the truth will know the truth. Give us what you know now about the consequences to bad science, bad public health policy, and, a, and an unsuspecting public, a trusting public, and what we're facing now and what we're likely to face in the future. Please share your insights of what you've discovered. And the number of people injured and the, the realistic number that Columbia University scientists found and that you found. Um, well, um, all I can say is, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at VAERS data. Uh, I'm not an all-cause mortality person. Um, there are, there, there are uncomparable, like, number of deaths and bears in the context of the COVID products when you compare them to all products combined for the past 30 years. I mean, everybody who knows uh, what I what I've been looking at here knows that that's true. It's I call it the bungalow skyscraper plot. I mean, there's there's no comparison. There's definitely something different about these products that are pushing people who are either infirm or old over the edge because the deaths are primarily increasing in older people as per the VAERS data. Um, you can, you have to account for an underreporting factor. The underreporting factor for a passive um, pharmacovigilance system like VAERS in the context of death is probably somewhere close to 10, um, by my estimate. Um, I calculated an underreporting factor for serious adverse events, of which death is one, using Pfizer's phase three clinical trial data rate for serious adverse events, and I got a number of 31. So that means you have to multiply a serious adverse event number from VAERS by 31 to get closer to the actual number of people who might be suffering. But of course, it's just an estimate, a guesstimate. And so um, the, the number of deaths in VAERS now is in the tens of thousands, and so you have to multiply that by about 10, So and that's just Americans. So, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of death. Um, that's 
not explained. That's the point, right? Like you, you absolutely have no explanation for the increase in, in death and or mortality, but it's definitely not the shots. You can't even like suggest that. So there, there's something, you know, unbalanced in that whole equation. Um, everybody who knows anything about this knows that nothing related to the COVID story matches up. Nothing we were told that was definitively true is is like it, it's it's all lies. It's not even untrue. It's not that it's been proven untrue. I I would have to believe based on what I was talking about before with the research and developers of lipid nanoparticles that like you you gave an example of Walensky um you know parroting safe and effective safe and effective I, I find it very hard that somebody who made it to CDC director wouldn't have known the truth of, of the matter of what she was talking about she was asked you know publicly along with Fauci in some I don't know some senate committee hearing um what the number of deaths were at the time of the hearing and neither of them had any idea. I mean, the number of deaths in bears, because that's their data set. That belongs to the CDC, HHS, FDA. That's theirs, you know. So the director of the CDC should be able to like, you know, take those numbers right out of her head, off the top of her head. I could, it's not my job, but I could. So I find it um, insincere. I'm always very generous with my words at the very least. Um, and uh, the Health Canada topic I was talking about, where they've actually admitted now that they can concur that this SB40 thing is in the, um, the Pfizer product, at least, um, that, should, that should have created a tidal wave from CBC, from other media entities. I mean, if it's pretty much a no-brainer at this point. If people aren't... Um, wondering why something that actually might affect billions of us literally because billions of people were injected with those particular products and of all the vials that have been tested or dna residual dna 100 percent of them have had it you have to start wondering like okay what's the percentage of vials the products that were put into people also had residual dna and what are the effects going to be because if you have any kind of integration event, first of all, it's going to be more probable that you're going to have an integration event with an enormous number of small bits of DNA that are introduced into your cell like a Trojan horse by a lipid nanoparticle as part of transfection. You know, if that integrates in, in an essential gene, I'm just gonna go all the way with this example, like P53, which is the guardian of the genome, you're in trouble any gene as a matter of fact like if you screw up any necessary gene by having something else integrate into it um you're, you're going to be in trouble so I'm not a geneticist not an oncologist but these are just the basics and the question remains are is this happening and we need to find out it's so simple it's so simple if you find a product is adulterated or contaminated whatever it is you find out, like, if it is, you confirm that it is, you pull it off the market, and then you find out what's going on in the people that were actually, like, 
ingesting it or injected with it. You, you find out if there are any negative repercussions by monitoring them, taking blood samples, you know, testing their stem cells or their sperm cells for um, specific integration events like you. That's what we need to do now. But <laughs> in order for that to happen, there has to be acknowledgement of the problem. So that's that was my point about Health Canada. I mean, they did they did the I'm, I'm going to give them credit. They did the right thing by just by admitting this. I mean, it was a it was a private email, but they still they still answered the question. Did you find this um, in in the uh, Pfizer product? So that should be it. Just just like it always has in the past in my lifetime. It should just ripple. You know, boom, 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 boom. Let's get this done. Let's find out if people have been affected in negative ways by this. Let's find out if people are going to be affected in negative ways by this. Maybe they won't. But we can't definitively say. This is the thing that bugs me. Like this, these mantras they come up with. There's no way it leaves the injection site. There's no way it's not safe and effective. There's no way, you know, there's going to be integration. It's like, you can't say that unless you prove otherwise. That's exactly the point. So that's that's all we're trying to do right now. We're trying to bring this to the public's attention so that we can get the ball rolling on proving us wrong because we don't want to be right about this. I'm laughing, but it's like nervous laughter. We do not want to be right about this. Jessica, just two final questions. We're coming at the end of our program. If you were to give your best guesstimate of how many Americans died, and we, we, we're not cornering you, we're saying it's a guesstimate uh, or a hypothesis based upon the figures you've been able to work with, how many have been injured or had adverse, serious adverse events, and how many have been permanently injured, what would those figures be? Um, the number of people who have died? Well, Approximately. It's just approximate. Because of the products? Or in the context of? <laughs> um, yes, from the vaccines. I don't would know. Three, I, I haven't would 300,000 be reasonable? Uh, more. More, okay. How many more? Um, if, if you use my guesstimate of 10 as an underreporting factor and you use VAERS as your guide, it's probably close. I, I would say it hovers around half a million. Okay. And how many injured? That would be dead. Um, injured? Uh, I don't know. I hate doing this because, I mean, it, there's, there's, I'm not basing it on anything like other than like a passive reporting system, because that's what I look at. I don't know. Um, there, there has to be millions. I mean, I, I would put that into like the 20 million figure, the, the number of people injured okay. slash affected by this. I mean- And, it, and permanently injured. Permanently? Uh, million and a half? Pardon? A million and a half? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that that's out of the ballpark of reality. Okay. We're in our last minute here. In World War One, 
in World War II, in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, we didn't lose as many soldiers in those major wars as we lost with COVID vaccination. And that's serious. And yet, no discussion. If you questioned any of this, you were considered no better than to be canceled. And yet, when 75,000 scientists and physicians signed the first great Barrington Declaration, you would have thought that 60 Minutes 2020, someone, maybe a Senate committee, would have wanted to bring in the leaders of that to explain what they were doing. Instead, they were all to be, their reputations to be destroyed. Since when have we had 75,000 physicians and scientists all work together on one particular issue and risk their careers and no one pays attention to their argument? That is concerning me. I want to thank you for all the good work you do and continue doing in bringing this to attention. I saw your testimony before the uh, uh, before the uh, European Union uh, Committee that uh, allowed you an opportunity to share your views. Thank you for all your work, Jessica Rose. You're welcome. And, and a final note on that. We, we had enough of a signal in bears in January 2021 with death alone to shut down the program. I mean, based on the number of people, quote unquote, allowed to die in the context of a pharmaceutical or biological product. So it's like, it's it's real obvious that humans are now collateral damage in this industry. Um, yeah. It's sad, but that's that's that seems to be that seems to be what we're up against now. I'm not okay with that. Neither are you. <laughs> no. Neither are. Well, keep in mind, in, in 1976, 21 to 23 confirmed dead from the swine flu, and they shut it down and banned it. Here, exactly. And look at the numbers. We're out of time. I want to thank. I want to thank all of you for watching and listening. And if you find there's value in what you've heard and seen, share it with others. Have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love